The Next Round, a marketing inspiration podcast. Hello, and welcome to The Next Round, the AAR podcast about transformation and marketing of some of the UK's most famous brands. In this episode, I have the pleasure of digging into one of the UK's most cherished brands. I'm your host, Robin Charney. I've been working in marketing and digital for over 20 years and now help other marketeers with their business challenges as the lead consultant for the ecosystem design practice here at AAR. Each episode is a fast-paced conversation with a super smart marketeer sharing the story of their heritage brand, its history, innovation, transformation, and most importantly, its next round. Why heritage brands? Because their journeys are more interesting, richer, and more complex. And frankly, we've all got a lot to learn from them. Today, I'm chatting to someone who I think has had one of the coolest jobs in retail. I'm thrilled to welcome Craig Inglis, who has just left the John Lewis partnership after an amazing 12 years. Hey, Craig, welcome to the next round. Hi, Robin. Delighted to be here and uh, really looking forward to the conversation. Thanks so much for joining. Craig started his career as a marketing graduate trainee at Thompson Holidays. So clearly he went for the free holiday option when he was young. Smart man. He then joined Virgin in their fledgling rail business, and after launching the trainline.com, he rose to become sales and marketing director at Virgin Trains. In 2008, he joined John Lewis as head of brand communications, then became marketing director in 2010, and joined the main board as customer director in 2015. At John Lewis, he presided over an overhaul of the retailer's customer and marketing strategies, and the brand went from strength to strength under his tenure. In 2018, he led the rebrand to become Waitrose and Partners and John Lewis and Partners, putting the business's much admired staff right at the heart of the customer proposition. Such a smart move. He's led a 600 strong team that's won pretty much every advertising award going. In 2020, after 12 amazing years, he's decided to move on to Pastures New. Craig is also non executive chairman of the Marketing Society. Wow, such an amazing career to date, Craig. How does hearing all that make you feel? What's been the most common thread that's propelled you forward in your career? Uh, it makes me feel old and exhausted. <laughs> um, so, so tiredness is what's propelled you forward. <laughs> absolutely. That's the thread all the way through. Um, what's the thread? That's a good question. From very early on, I was interested in consumers and brands and, and psychology. And um, so that kind of, that's been a thread throughout and I still have that passion. But um Actually, all, all of the jobs that I've done, uh, including what I'm doing today with the Marketing Society, uh, I've all started with a belief um, in the purpose of the organisation. If I think back to even Thompson, I was inevitably seduced by the free holidays, but uh, <laughs> but also Thompson was, despite being you know a sort of package holiday company, it, its its mission was to to create dreams, create dreams for people, and and that might sound a bit grandiose, but actually. For me, that was pretty magical. I loved that. And um, uh, it really, I, I really connected with it. And then similarly, when I moved to Virgin, it was all about revolutionising the UK's railways. And, I, you know, that, that felt like a really compelling vision. And, I, you know, I got right behind Richard Branson's sort of view of, of what we could do with rail. And, uh, and, then, and then John Lewis is sort of known for its, its purpose beyond uh, just profit. You know, it's about the happiness of its partners. It's owned by its, its people. So all, all of those purposes have sort of have given me a belief in something beyond just growing and making money. I think if there's any thread, it, it, it's that. No, no, that makes perfect sense. And it's a perfect segue because I wanted to talk and kind of kick off talking a little bit about, about John Lewis as a brand. I'm obviously a foreigner to these shores, despite being here for 20 years. But 
the love in this country for John Lewis. And I'd say it's perhaps one of the UK's most cherished heritage brands. I've had so many people say to me, you know, I, I wish John Lewis could run my life. You know, I'd buy anything from John Lewis. And that that's a lot of brand love and obviously a lot of responsibility, but it has such an amazing history. And I just wanted to share with the listeners just a couple of, of the facts that I came across. You know, founded in 1864, it has an actual constitution. The partnership operates on democratic principles, sharing power with all its partners, and it had its first Democratic Council over a hundred years ago in 1919. So I'd love to hear from you a bit about how working in such a purpose-driven organization shaped the type of marketing you did and and how that history and, and purpose was was an unfair advantage, I guess, against some mm. of your competitors. Hey, you know, it's fascinating. It's um, the history of the, the brand still shapes what's done today. So the constitution is still alive and kicking. It's not something that's consigned to the past, quite the opposite. And when you do your induction, you are expected to read the constitution and, and the sort of various Did books. you? Did you read yeah, it, Craig? Yeah, very much. And actually, you know what? It's really compelling and, uh, <laughs> and, and quite, I mean, quite weird. You know, you don't typically join an organisation and read the constitution. So I found all that, you know, fascinating. And, and also uh, the founder, John Speedon Lewis, who was actually the original John Lewis's son, He's sort of seen as the founder of the partnership, at least. Uh, he uh, was an incredible man with a, you know, amazing brain. And, and he, he, his musings, it's really fascinating. And, and my point really is that that still colours the business today. And you mentioned the council, for instance. You know, I, I would um, appear at council with the rest of the journalist board every three months. It was uh, no question my toughest days of the year. There were four in a year and... You know, I'd be really terrified going into those because the board would be held to account in those sessions. So there'd be a couple of hundred people in the room and the whole thing live streamed to the whole business and with no real prep allowed, you know, so you could be asked anything. And so it's proper high stakes stuff. I felt like being a politician or something. And uh, I often questioned whether I was being paid enough money to, to go through that sort of uh, rigor, but but actually fundamentally, it sits right at the heart of the business and, and deems the business to be different. And the council can fire the chairman if they choose to, you know. So they still have votes of confidence every three months in the chairman. So that you know that that all those things and there are many more make the business feel different, and that colours how you go about doing things and make sure that the purpose is right at the heart and talked about and active all the time. So, so coming on our little podcast is a is a walk in the park for you compared to compared <laughs> it's compared to, to a council. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you have a maybe a, a specific example you might be able to share with us around how that purpose shaped marketing for you? Well, look, when, when we um, started the marketing journey, it was um, John Lewis hadn't uh, really embraced marketing to that point, despite being you know nearly 150 years old at that point. It, it only had a marketing team for about three years and in many ways could be described as being sort of anti-marketing. Uh, there was this sort of belief that if the product was right, uh, people would come and mm. and that we, we shouldn't over-promote ourselves. And so it was very evident to me very early that we needed to capture the essence of what made John Lewis special. And so we put a lot of time and effort into doing just that, you know, making sure we had the insight uh, that we could share more broadly with partners because that determined the strategy. And in our case, actually, going back to what you were saying earlier about people's reactions to journalists and the emotion they feel, actually, when we dug under the surface of this sort of brand equity, what we saw was that most of the affinity in the brand was rooted in uh, rational affinity. So things like trust and reliability and fairness, you know, 
really important things, but but not emotional affinity. Actually, when it came to emotional affinity, John Lewis was no better than any of the competition. And that just felt wrong uh, for a business that was had so much history uh, and which essentially sold things that you either put on your body or in your home. There's a sort of inherent emotional opportunity, a sort of latent opportunity. And so that's what uh, guided us to embark upon a path to create a more emotional positioning, as you mentioned earlier. With that in mind, taking on a rebrand a few years ago of a much-loved brand must have been kind of scary. What drove the rebrand? You know, What were some of the things you learned off the back of it? Well, it was four years of my life I'll never get back. Uh, <laughs> That's why so, you're so tired. <laughs> <laughs> it was tough. It's expensive. You can't demonstrate a return from it, really. And you have to take a whole organisation and believe that it's the right thing to do. In the case of John Lewis, we there was a number of uh, things that were causing us to want to change, apart from the fact that the identity at the time had been around sort of 90 years or so, uh, one, nine years, um, and, and it was starting to feel a bit stayed. Um, it was just, there were a number of technical things. So it, was, uh, it wasn't created for a digital age. It was mm. created for a letterhead, business cards, and maybe some bags and the sides mm-hmm. of lorries. <laughs> you t- try and take that identity and apply it to digital, put it in an app, take it down to small sizes, and it's a problem. So there were some technical issues mm-hmm. with it. And then the other thing was in fashion. Its main history was in home and electricals. I'd always had fashion, but it wasn't really a fashion business. And we were trying to make a big shift to be much more fashionable and much more about women's wear and beauty. And it was essentially quite a masculine, quite utilitarian brand. And it just didn't have that sort of inherent emotion that I was talking about earlier. So after lots of hurdles, lots of hurdles uh, involving uh, every part of John Lewis, the world and his wife, we um, got to a point where we were pushing on with it. And then at that point, it became apparent that partners were going to be the centre of it. And therefore, really, Waitrose needed to be on the on the same bus. And so then I had to go and sort of go through all that again with the Waitrose board <laughs> and and uh, and and uh, a lovely man called Martin George, who's customer director at Waitrose, joined and so he was my partner in crime and in, in uh, kind of making it all happen. But um, it was it was a brilliant result. It was worth the four years and the, all the hurdles because, um, you know, I think putting those special people, those partners at the heart of those two brands was absolutely the right thing to do. And uh, I hope it bears fruit for many years to come. Oh, I'm sure it will. And I think that's your book, Craig. I mean, you know, <laughs> writing, writing that story. Oh, if you could just write it for me, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah. I'll do that right after this podcast. No problem. I've got an hour. <laughs> Should be good. Um, I guess on the flip side, you know, speaking about that retail industry and the change going on in retail, I mean, it's going through a massive transformation and also, frankly, a pretty challenging time, I think. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of those challenges? Yeah, I mean, it's... um, It's a big question, I know. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's felt existential. Uh, It really has. I think... um, It can only be described as a structural change. It's not cyclical Mm. change. It's, It's a, you know, genuine deep structural change. And it's been happening over the last decade, really, as consumers have switched from buying in shops to buy online. I mean, that, that's the, the the big change, obviously. And, I, you know, that impacts on marketing, uh, of course, um, but more importantly, it touches every part of the business. It requires a, a complete re-engineering from top to bottom. So it's in your product proposition, your supply chain, your fulfillment, your customer service, everything changes. Uh, if you really want to embrace digital properly. And I think for many legacy businesses, John Lewis included, that means basically changing the DNA of the business. You are adding complexity that just didn't exist before and then losing some of the things you did have. And so 
all of that has caused profitability to become a challenge. And, you know, in my, in my latter couple of years at John Lewis, that was our big focus for us because one of the things that defines John Lewis as different is that the partners share in the profitability of the business through a, through a bonus. The number one challenge is actually uh, no different to what I would have said to you 10 or 20 years ago. And that's the need to develop customer propositions that are truly differentiated and valuable in the eyes of your target customers. And then to tell stories about those propositions, which uh, engage those customers and bring your proposition to life in all the channels which your customers live is, is the job. That is absolutely more necessary than ever before, I think. And digital acceleration is just driving that need uh, even harder. Couldn't agree with you more. And I think what's fascinating to me and hopefully to the listeners is that you also went on to become customer director. So by implication, supersedes being marketing director, which again is fascinating in of itself. So owning that customer from beginning to end... I always laugh that, you know, most marketeers have one arm tied behind their back when they're trying to do a growth job because they don't have all the toys in the toy box to kind of make it happen. So I'm thrilled that John Lewis gave you that opportunity. But I'm also curious, what makes a marketer a great customer director? Well, I honestly think partly it's just what's in a name. I mean, I I, hmm. I happen to be called customer director and it's interesting, you, you know, you say it supersedes. I think that's kind of how it's perceived and it is perception more than reality, to be honest. Mm. I could easily be called marketing director and the job was still relevant. Mm -hmm. So if I, if I take my own story, people are basically saying, look, you can keep on being the ad guy. Uh, you're doing a really good job at being the ad guy. You keep doing that and, uh, you know, fill your boots. But if you want to have more influence and we think you can, then you're going to have to expand out your comfort zone. You're going to have to be connected to more parts of the business. And I knew I, I had more to give. I, I wanted to give more. And and so that meant embracing uh, subject matter that just, you know, wasn't as natural and, and I wasn't as interested in. So I'd learned everything about running shops and warehouses and lorries and, you know, everything in between. And that gave me the ability to be credible and, and build relationships across the whole business in a way that I couldn't have otherwise. So I joined the operating board and sort of learned all of that. And I, and I think for marketeers more broadly... They are the people closest to customers in a business. And I've always felt that they needed to be at the center of the creation of the total customer proposition. It's not, this is marketing is not about communication. That's just part of the story. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of the icing the cake in a way. And I, I think. Um, Definitely. And let's talk about the other C word, which is creativity. And we haven't talked about it yet, but I'm, I'm going to guess that you're a believer in the role of creativity. Let's talk a little bit about that evolution of creativity at John Lewis and I also need one super secret fact about the John Lewis Christmas ads that nobody else knows because I've been deemed I have to go get this from you, Craig. So those are the two questions <laughs> on this creativity bit. You can choose super. whichever one you want to start with. <laughs> wow, a super secret fact. Super okay. secret fact. <laughs> let me let me think about that whilst I'm banging on about creativity. Um, so look, you're right. I am a believer in creativity in all its forms. I think it's the thing that elevates a brand in the eyes of its customers and it captures their imaginations. It brings the brand to life and it engages customers, but that comes in all forms really. I, I think, um, you know, it could be innovation in the customer experience, whether that's in shops or digital, it could be in creating products that you just desire and you just have to have in your life. Mm. Um, and of course it's, it is also in telling stories and uh, in content and, and marketing communications. And so that's the point for me. It's about uh, engaging and inspiring customers in, in the different parts of your proposition and creating a culture that allows that 
creativity to thrive is the key. So it's the conditions uh, that you create to allow that to thrive. So, so that that's what it means for me in a business. You, you know, anyone can tell the same story. Or two brands can tell the same story, but you can tell them in such different ways. And it's the creativity that defines one brand from the other. You know, so so it's incredibly important to me. It's also the thing that makes the job really fun. Mm. Um, it makes it hard at times um, because. Uh, inevitably it, there's lots of judgment involved and debate and all those things but it's what creates richness for me personally and then uh what was the uh, christmas you asked me about didn't you um <laughs> yeah that little thing that, that little, little thing, thing you're famous for in addition to all the other things you're famous for those, those christmas ads everyone always wants to talk to me about christmas i know it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's I'll, I'll be shocked if i don't ask craig but um yeah. You haven't told me what your favourite is and also where I went wrong. That's what most people say. Is like, no, I wouldn't just, dare. Just to, just to let you know, Craig, the best one was XXX. What's, what's your favourite? Do you have one? Uh, yeah, it's a bit like choosing your favourite child. It's kind of difficult. I but um, no, I, I um, my favourite is The Long Wait, which was really the first Christmas ad that properly got traction. Yeah. Um, so 2011. And yeah. It was, um, we thought we'd done something pretty good, but we had no idea what was coming in terms of reaction. And so I guess it will always feel special. And uh, so that's my favourite, but there have been many, many since. Um, in terms of uh, little nuggets, honestly, there, there isn't probably one single thing, but um, there's a couple of things I can tell you, which are probably not that well known. First, first of all, uh, without naming any names, we turned down lots of really famous artists. Oh, I bet. Uh, who wanted to do the track. And... Uh, as the ads got more famous, we got more and more famous artists doing demos and so on. And the, the process worked by, we always did the film first, mm-hmm. got the film to kind of first, second edit. And then, and then we would think about, we'd be thinking about tracks, but we'd start thinking about artists at that point and ask different artists to demo. And and typically, uh, apart from some notable exceptions like Sir Elton John and, and Lily Allen, uh, mostly we actually went for reasonably unknown artists. You know, people like Gabrielle Applin and mm. uh, even Ellie Golding back in the time when we worked mm-hmm. with her was was uh, she was pretty unknown. So, uh, and that's because big name artists would typically come in and just put too much of themselves uh, on the demo. So it would be very much them, and what mm-hmm. we needed it to be very much the ad. And mm-hmm. so you would you would lay it on top of the film, and and the film would just be completely drowned by the the track. So it just wasn't understated enough, and so. We turned down lots of big name artists, actually multiple times, uh, to the point of just it was just embarrassing that they kept asking. <laughs> just take like, no, just take no for asking. an answer. Stop we don't asking. want you. <laughs> you're re- you're really good, and I've got you on Spotify, <laughs> but you're not right for this. Uh, so that was hard. Uh, it was hard. Uh, we also did multiple re-recordings, so so the endings were difficult. Right. Uh, yeah. Every year, I think I can't actually think of any year where the ending was not a big source of debate. And even Always a Woman, which is the first ad, actually outside of Christmas, but the first ad that really got traction. Uh, we re-recorded the ending three times. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and I remember about a week before it was due to go on air, myself and James Murphy, who was running Adam and Eve at the time, sitting down with uh, Diggle Wilson, the director. And, and at that point, we didn't have an ending to the ad and it, it was due to go on air. Uh, and so we had to go and do a re-record on a Sunday morning, which... I never thought we'd pull off, but but we kind of did. And it was, uh, yeah. Amazing. It's all about Heath Robinson. There you go. Amazing. And it's interesting. You you talk about we all the way through that little 
little discussion. And I wanted to dig into your relationships with your agencies specifically, because I think it's lovely that you, you know, talk about a we and not an I. Um, and you've had incredibly long lasting relationships and productive relationships with your creative agencies and your other agencies over the years. So what is your secret to that longevity? And what in your view, helps make for a great relationship. Yeah, I'm really proud of that. You know, I think um, I think it's partly because we worked in relatively small teams, so relatively small groups of people who work together over quite a long period of time. So you kind of get to know each other really well. So that helps. But I think beyond that, if there is a secret, it is a pretty simple one, which is about the strength of human relationships that we create, uh, which are rooted in a sort of implicit trust in each other. That trust only comes from honesty. It comes from the ability to be, I mean, sometimes brutally honest with each other, or, or actually often brutally honest both with ways. each other. Yeah, both ways. And that's exactly what I mean. And so so that's what great human relationships are based on. And, you know, I think um, that means the ability to say anything to each other, but always with positive intent. Mm-hmm. And um, it, um, you know, I was never more proud than when, when I would see maybe a couple of people from the same agency arguing amongst themselves <laughs> in front of us, the, the client, because... Uh, you know, I never wanted to be presented to. I never wanted things wrapped up in it with, with a bow. It was like, let's let's talk about the work. Let's talk about where we are, what's and all. Because that's where the magic comes from. It stops you believing the hype and it allows you to set a high bar for yourselves. And um, yeah, as I say, I think that's where the magic comes from. So so if there's any, any, um, any secret, it, it's that. I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I'm curious though, I mean, my view is that so much of what we see online now, especially with kind of big brands and big retailers, is is vanilla. It all kind of looks the same. It feels the same. It does a very functional, efficient job. You know, the, even the photography all looks the same. Well, what what are, what does that mean? What what are some of the challenges around that? I guess now looking at it, looking at it a little bit in the rearview mirror, and and how much further do you think it has to go to? kind of really get to a point where it feels like the brand you're shopping, if that makes sense, as mm, opposed to every other brand on the planet. Yeah, it does make sense. For me, content is incredibly important in all of this. Content is the thing that is what would have been called a shop window in the past and defines one brand versus another. So it's that move to publishing, move to kind of yeah, being, uh, having absolutely. a personality. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I, you know, and my God, there's so many brands that are doing it really well. Uh, uh, Who do you and, like out there? Who's inspiring you? Oh, I mean, I, I love uh, Bloom and Wild. I love Patch. I don't know if you know Patch. It's sort of indoor mm. plants. Uh, Cezanne. Uh, Cezanne's a French fashion brand who I love. Grew up digitally and now have some shops as well in London and Paris, but uh, fundamentally digital brand. Their, their experience is fantastic. The product's fantastic, but their content is incredibly inspiring. And then others like Aesop. Uh, it's got an incredibly single-minded view, which comes across in spades. And then brands like Loaf and Bowden know their target customers really well and are very engaging uh, in, in all of their content. So it's brands like that. But others like H&M, H&M, uh, H&M Home. I don't know if you've been in an H&M Home shop, have, but their home yes. shops are so inspiring. Um, and funny enough, I actually don't think they are digitally. So you go and have the digital experience. It's nothing. It's nowhere near as rich as the physical. What is it experience. with the Swedes? IKEA is the same. <laughs> it is exactly right. So uh, those digital experiences are not additive to those brands, but and they almost feel like different brands. So it just shows you how you can get it wrong as well. And it's it's just not it's not easy stuff, but um, the content is is king. I think it's the new battleground for for digital. 
No, I agree. And it's certainly it's certainly the question I get asked about the most when I'm working with clients, you know, that kind of content model and that approach. And, you know, there's so many different ways that brands are tackling it, but so many are kind of at least trying to kind of adopt a publishing mindset, which I think is really hard for a brand. I don't think it's DNA. I think it's 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 a shift. To be a great digital organization, you need to have editorial capability. Brands and, and particularly retailers have to have an editorial perspective because to your point about vanilla, part of that is that when you arrive online and you're looking for something, it just feels overwhelming, uh, uh, you know? And, and so I think increasingly consumers are looking for help with navigation. They're looking for curation and editing. And that means having an editorial point of view. comes back to knowing who you are, what you stand for, and not yep. being afraid to kind of show your colors in some ways. You know, so many exactly. brands are afraid to offend or afraid to do this. And I think that that's why I'm I'm so kind of pro-heritage brand, because I think you know who you are. Um, just, I guess, to finish off, let's talk a little bit about the next round. You know, that's, that's, that's our title. And I want to dig into our beloved marketing industry. You know, what are your thoughts on our challenges as we move ahead? I think um, the, the single greatest influence of beyond, beyond COVID and what's happened has been the shift to digital and the acceleration that we've seen. That, that will, I think, continue. And who knows where the equilibrium will fall, but uh, it's causing exponential change in so many ways. And we could pick up loads, you know, whether it's, you know, the drive towards personalization, for instance, you know, it's huge, it has been bubbling for a long time and and now it's really getting momentum. And so uh, it's really about marketers taking the opportunity that that acceleration represents and, and grabbing it to inspire uh, and engage their customers and not focus on the lowest common denominator. So often I see brands focused on price you know, focused on pretty uninspiring content and being repetitive and just, you know, doing themselves a disservice. So so moving to digital doesn't mean losing some of the focus of the past. Actually, it's quite the opposite. I think it's more acutely important that we uh, focus in on the kind of key things that were always true of marketing and that, and that's fundamentally about differentiation. I couldn't agree more. Such good advice. I'm going to leave it there and just say thank you so much for chatting to me today. It's been a great chat. I've learned loads. I've loved talking to you and I can't wait to see what you do next. I'm sure it's going to be something absolutely brilliant. Ah, Thank you. It's been my absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Next Round. I hope you found it as interesting as I did and can take some insights back to your marketing. If you could rate and share this podcast, it would really help others to find these great stories. I'd also love to carry on the conversation and hear what you think. We'll be sharing and chatting about it on LinkedIn and Twitter. The next round is brought to you by AAR, the experts in marketing ecosystems. At AAR, we are a multidisciplined team of consultants who have strong and well-informed views on what brands need to do to overcome today's marketing challenges in order to better connect their businesses to their customers and drive growth. Thanks for listening and see you next time.